few words in any language evoke the kind of feelings we have when we hear the word Father. Some of us will sense, uh, will feel a sense of loss this Christmas season, even upon hearing the word Father. Either because we had fathers that were wonderful, that are no longer with us, or because we grieve due to the unfulfilled longings for the kind of fathers that we've never had. If you read your meditation for preparation, those were the opening words. It's an email that goes out every weekend in order to best prepare our hearts to gather together on Sunday mornings. If you do not receive that and would like to receive that, we would love to send that to you. But I believe that sentiment, that statement is true. And holidays have a way of bringing out acutely some of the heightened feelings around fatherhood, particularly during the holiday seasons. And praise God that some of us will have gratitude well up within us as we consider Father because of God's grace to us in giving us a wonderful earthly Father. And the good news of the Christian faith this morning that I get to stand to proclaim is that Jesus Christ helps us know God as our Father. Who, unlike every earthly father, will live forever. And who, unlike every earthly father, is always there for us. Who will never leave us, nor forsake us. And who, unlike every other earthly father, does everything perfect and good. In fact, it's the unique privilege and the mark of a Christian to know God as Father. This is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That we get to know God as our Father. No need to grope around in darkness as though we're looking for some higher spiritual power. No need to, to chase after some false God in order to meet a felt need. We can know God himself as our Father. And we can belong to God as one of his children. And the reason that Christians have this unique and distinct privilege of knowing and relating to God as Father is because of the work that has been done by God the Son. And Christmas is when we remember and celebrate the Son's first coming through the womb of a virgin born in a sleepy little town of Bethlehem to a peasant young lady and a carpenter. And as we just heard read in Isaiah chapter 9, this one who would come in the most unlikely and lowly of means would have shoulders broad enough to bear the government and his rule and his reign would know no end. And he would establish his rule and he would uphold his rule with justice and with righteousness. What it is that you and I long for from government, he does perfectly. 
And we can see this, and we know this to be true as we read about the life of Jesus. But we also know this to be true because some hundreds of years before Christ would come, there were prophecies that were given, made about this one who would come, born of a virgin, who would rule and whose rule would know no end. And as a, mean of, as a means of preparing our hearts this Advent season, we're considering one of those prophecies. And in particular, we're considering how he was foretold to be exactly who he is and exactly who we need. And so specifically, the passage that you heard read this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, gives us what it is that this promised one shall be called. And each one of these names meets our need. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. I was helped to consider, as one author put it this way, just consider how different this child would be. Wonderful Counselor indicates that Jesus will be a supernatural source of extraordinary wisdom. That's amazing news for people that are in need of guidance. Mighty God indicates that Jesus will be divinely strong and powerful. That's amazing news for those of us who are weak. Eternal, everlasting Father indicates that Jesus will care for his people forever as a good father cares for his children. That's amazing news for people that are alone. And as we'll see next week, Prince of Peace indicates that Jesus will bring deep well-being and right relationships. And that's amazing news for a people who, because of our sin, have ruined our relationship with God and have distorted our relationship with others. And so this morning, we want to give our attention to that third name. The third name of eternal or everlasting Father. And maybe you're here, and as Charlie mentioned earlier, maybe the thinking cap and sort of the smoke is beginning to emerge of going, wait a minute, God the Son called eternal Father? Huh. Well, there's the dilemma Let's go to the Lord and ask for help as we open his word. God of great mercy and grace, would you meet us now? In many ways, I feel like the little boy on the mountainside with very little in the basket. Loaves, fish. Asking you this morning to do a supernatural work by your spirit of feeding your sheep. And so may we feast. May our time together in your word create a hunger and an appetite that will not be contained by the end of a service. But may it spill over into moment after moment, day after day, month after month, year after year. We want to know more of you. And so would you graciously meet with us now? For your glory and for our good, we pray this. Amen.
Well, if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them to Isaiah chapter 9. We will be spending our time just particularly in verse 6. But think about that eternal Father, everlasting Father. This is the title, this is the name that will be given to this child. And it will help us to remember that in this child we meet God. We saw that last week. The one who would come would be mighty God. We meet God, the one who meets all of our longings and who does not disappoint. The one who is perfect and permanent. The one who is compassionate and courageous. The one who exemplifies leadership and love. That's who we meet in the most unexpected of places. A baby lying in a manger. And so before we dive into exactly what it means that God the Son will be called eternal Father, let's just consider what it doesn't mean. Okay, so Isaiah is not saying that this royal child, this promised one who will come, will be God the Father. That's not, that's not what Isaiah is doing here. How do we know this? Well, Isaiah 9, 6 makes it clear. He says that there will be a son that will be given to us. If we were to flip back two chapters, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, the Lord himself will give you a sign, and the sign is that a child would come. And so, not speaking of God the Father. The historic Christian position is that God, believing, is, uh, is that God is a trinity. Triunity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each fully God, there is one God, but each distinct in their person from one another. And so Isaiah is not saying, he's not some Unitarian here, saying, yes, there's just one God, there's no distinction between any of those in the Godhead. He's not a Unitarian, praise be to God. He's also not teaching modalism. And you were thinking, man, if there was one word that I would hope would make the Christmas sermon, this series, it was modalism. Modalism, just for the record, now that we've already gotten here, it was a heresy that was denounced by the early church that said God is one. And because God is one, there's really no distinction between the persons. And so one of the ways to look at it is that God is a God who at different times wears a different hat. Sometimes he's father and he takes that off, and sometimes he's son and takes that off, and sometimes he's Holy Spirit and he can take that off. And while the good desire to preserve there is one God, the unbiblical not good distinction uh, or, or not looking at the distinctions of each of the persons of the Godhead. And so to say it another way, it matters when we proclaim that the Son died on the cross. The Father didn't die on the cross. It matters when, whenever we're thinking about this that the Holy Spirit didn't die upon the cross. When the disciples were in the upper room, they weren't waiting for the Father to appear. Clearly, throughout the Scriptures, we see there are distinct persons and distinct roles that each person plays in this triune God. 
And so while water and ice and steam makes for a great analogy for modalism, it is not a good analogy for the Trinity. And so what Isaiah is doing here in saying that this one who will be called Eternal Father, he's not speaking about God the Son's role in the Godhead. He's speaking about God the Son's rule and interactions with us. I think Spurgeon is helpful here. He says, This passage has no bearing upon the position and the titles of the three persons of the Trinity with regard to each other. No, this is speaking to the relation that God the Son would have to us. To us, He will be called Eternal Father, Everlasting Father. And so that begs the question, then, how is Jesus Eternal Father to us? Well, this morning, we're going to consider those two words, Eternal and Father. And we will see, with those two words being our two sermon points, how it is that Jesus is eternal Father to us. And so, number one, it's helpful for us in thinking about this title for the Son of God, for God the Son. It's helpful for us to know, number one, that Jesus is eternal. This is what John chapter 1 tells us. John chapter 1 makes clear to us that God the Son existed eternally as the Word of God. And the Word of God was in the beginning with God. And the Word of God is God, was God. In John chapter 1, verse, verses 2 and 3 begin to say that not only was the Word there with God in the beginning, and the Word was God, but that all things that have come into being have come through this word. Jesus later, in John chapter 17, verse 5, he's speaking of the glory that he shares with his Father, and he says, I shared this with you before the foundation of the world. And so if we just read through the Gospels, and I would just encourage you, if it's been a while since you've read through the Gospel accounts of who is Jesus, Christmas gives us an opportunity to remember and to consider how it is that he came into the world, but it's helpful to know that his life testified to every prophecy that was made about him, and his life gives us clarity on just how he is God. He does that which only God can do. And one of the things that we hear over and over and over is, is although he had a birth, he did not have a beginning. He has always been. Colossians chapter 1. We considered this even last week. He is the image. He being the Son. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by the Son all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He, the Son, is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. 
Just as we think that the Father is eternally the Father, so too the Bible tells us that the Son is eternally the Son. And so when we think about this one who will come, who, although he's taking the form of, of human likeness, this is not his beginning. He has always existed. In Hebrews chapter 7, in describing the priest Melchizedek, if you're interested in studying that, C.J. Popovich, after the service, describing this priest Melchizedek, this is what he says. He says, Melchizedek will be like the Son of God. Okay? Like him how? Who had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Over and over, the scriptures testify that God the Son has always been. He's always existed. He's eternal. When the New Testament tells us that at just the right time, the Father sent the Son, it presupposes that the Father always had the Son with him in order to be sent. The Father wasn't waiting on a certain time in which the Son would come into existence. He was waiting on the fullness in the right time. This is, in essence, the line that we speak and, and read about in the Nicene Creed that speaks of Jesus being eternally begotten. And we don't use the word begotten anymore. It's old-fashioned, sounds that way, but it means to come from a father. And so the Christian tradition, if you are a follower of Christ, this is the doctrine and the belief that you have about the Son, is that the, son, the sonship of Christ goes all the way back to the beginning of God. And even in saying that, there's not a beginning of God. He's always been. And so the, the sonship of Christ goes all the way back as long as God has been. As long as there was a father, there was a son. Because the son is one essence with the father. And I'm focusing on God the son, but the same is true of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is everlasting. He's eternal. And that, do, that just doesn't inform what happens when we look back. It also informs today and what happens when we look ahead. And Isaiah clearly has this in mind in Isaiah chapter 9. Because he gives these four titles and then verse 7 says, and there will be no end to the increase of his government. And so as we think about the son being called and unto us being eternal father, then verse 7 sort of takes our, our gaze not backwards to how he's always been, but forward to how his rule and his reign will never end. Hebrews 13.8 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what this means for us today is that God the Son is not dead. In fact, we know from his word that he lives to make intercession on, the, on behalf of his people. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. This is the hope for every Christian this morning. Is that the one who always has existed, always will exist, and is alive and well today. Again, I think Spurgeon is poetically helpful here. He says, at the end of your days, you shall find that his cleansing fountain is still opened and his precious blood has not lost its power. 
you shall find that the priest who filled the healing fount with his own blood still lives to purge you from all iniquity. When only your last battle remains to be fought, you shall find that the hand of your conquering captain has not grown feeble, nor his arm waxed short. The living Savior shall cheer the living saint. Nor is this all, for when death has taken you away as with a flood, and all the men of your generation have fallen like grass beneath the mower's blade, Jesus, Jesus shall live, and you, caught up to heaven, shall find him there bearing the dew of his youth, when the sun's burning eye shall be dim with age, and the lamps of heaven shall be paled into eternal midnight." When all of this world shall melt as the winter's ice melts, the, melts at the approach of spring, then you shall find the Lord Jesus still remains the perennial spring of joy and life and glory to his people. As he always has been, so he is, and so he always will be. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. Even now, this Advent season, 2021, rest upon Him. May this Advent season be a season of rest for you. That you're able to throw yourself upon the eternal. And take heart. Take heart. Speak your troubles in his ear. He listens. Cast your sins and your burdens at his feet. He cares. Why would you not turn and hope in him? And maybe the better question is where else will, will you turn? The interaction that Jesus has with the disciples. Are you going to leave me now, too? Where else are we going to go? With you belongs the words of life. Perhaps you're not a Christian this morning. I want to remind you that the Christ that the Bible makes clear is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means that what we see him doing in the manger, drawing near to those with great need, is what he continues to do today. He draws near to those with great need in order to meet those needs. And we would have to understand his heart to know that his love is at such a depth where he cares not merely and only about meeting temporary superficial needs, but addressing your greatest. And that's removing the stain of sin from your soul. And so to my non-Christian friends, I would just plead with you. There is something that's at stake and it's the very adjective used to describe the Father. It's eternity. The very adjective used to describe the Son. It's eternity. 
trust in the perfect life of Christ, the one that you couldn't live but you should have, and trust in the death of Christ on the cross to make satisfactory the payment of sin. It's a death and it's a wrath that you and I are deserving of because of our sin. And because of great mercy and grace, it's a wrath that we can avoid because of the work of Christ expiring on the cross. And you said, wait a minute, Justin. I thought you just said that God the Son is eternal. How is there good news if he died on the cross? And later in Hebrews, we read that he holds the keys to death and hell in his hands. Death doesn't keep him. Graves don't hold him. And on the third day, he, ra- he raised from the dead, showing and proving that he can do what only God can do. And now he lives and he will reign eternally. And the good news is that if you turn from your sin and trust in him alone, that you too can reign with him. That you can know him as eternal father. Talk to anyone. Throw yourself, even if you don't talk to anyone, just throw yourself on the good news of what Christ has done. The Bible spills over with truth about the eternal nature of God the Son. And so maybe we can begin to see, okay, I can see how Jesus is eternal. I see how he's everlasting. But what about Father? How do we get there? Brings us to point number two. Jesus as Father. Jesus as Father. And so in what sense do we see from the Bible that Jesus is, is fatherly. Jesus as a father. In my study, I came across uh, at least five ways that we see this in the Bible. The good news is that you're probably sitting next to someone who can think of three or four more ways. So this is a good conversation over lunch today. Let's consider the ways in which Jesus is father to his people. So number one, Jesus images the Father to us. He images the Father to us. We saw this last week, that the Son, Hebrews chapter 1, the Son is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Colossians 1, 15, he is the image of the invisible God. If you were to read the Gospel of John, what you would find over and over is Jesus makes claims and he says, I and the Father are one. Not Unitarian. There's a clear distinction of persons, but the Son is of the same substance as the Father. Such such an interesting and poignant moment in John chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. Philip asked Jesus, would you show us Would you show us God? We want to see the Father. The response of Jesus, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
It is the business of the Son to image to us who is the Father. If we want to know what the Father is like, all of Holy Scripture would tell us to look then at the Son. Not look at the Son because He is God the Father, but look at the Son because He images to us who the Father is. He makes the Father known. He's the access by which people can get to the Father, John chapter 14, verse 6. He's fatherly in this way. The way that you and I, the only way that you and I can come to know the Father, be in good standing, be in safe standing with the Father is through the Son. The Bible will make clear that we behold the glory of God, the Father, in the face of the Son, Jesus Christ. And so how is, how is it that Jesus is Father? Well, number one, the Bible clearly puts forth, he images the Father to us. He makes known the Father to us. He's the access, the only one, by which we can have right standing with the Father. But secondly, Jesus is fatherly in his care for us. He's fatherly in his care for us. This child who we celebrate and remember at Christmas is, the ever, is also everlasting father in this way. He is fatherly toward his children. Again, would encourage you, read through the Gospels and just look at what Jesus is doing to people whom the rest of society, they're discarding, they're ignoring, they're mocking, they're ridiculing. And yet Jesus comes along and Jesus is fatherly. He's affectionate and compassionate. He's not sweeping sin under the rug. He's not weak and passive but he's tender. He has tender mercies towards those that have great need. He's fatherly in his goodness. He's fatherly in his compassion. He acts toward us as a faithful, perfect, and good father. Again, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of father, but how Jesus is fatherly with us He's always there. He's never too busy. He's not preoccupied. He doesn't easily fly off the handle. He doesn't make promises that he can't keep, nor does intend to. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. I mean, he is fatherly in every way that every earthly father in this room desires to be. Everything that you and I have ever dreamt that a father could be. This is how Jesus cares and engages with, with people and specifically with his people. He's the perfect provider and the perfect protector. 
He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not passive. He's not absent. He's not unreliable. He's not cruel. He's not uncaring. He's not abusive. He affirms and he cares. He sacrifices and provides. He protects and secures. He never abandons. He never abuses. He is tender and sensitive in his love and care for his people. And at this point, someone may say, well, wait a minute. I understand, yeah, God is, or uh, Jesus is fatherly to us because really, like, aren't we all like sons of God? Aren't we all interacting with the Son as his children? Well, God clearly is the creator and the sustainer of all. But when the Bible begins to talk about the fatherly care of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He's not speaking. The Bible doesn't speak in terms of creation, but in terms of redemption. It's not that we can know God as Father. It's not that we can receive the fatherly care of Christ merely because we've been created by God. We receive this through redemption. The fatherhood that Jesus displays and that God the Father exercises, it it depends on our relationship to him. And in fact, the Bible will tell us that all of us came into this world not as children of God. Ephesians chapter 2 would remind us we came in as children of wrath. We are at enmity with God. And the good news is that because of the birth and because of the trajectory and because of the life and the death and the resurrection of the child that we celebrate at Christmas, the good news is that that relationship can change today. You can come to know the fatherly care of Christ when you turn from your sin and trust in him alone. And so Jesus is a father in this way. That to be loved by Jesus is to be cared for in a fatherly, compassionate manner. Third, how, is, how do we see Jesus as Father? Number three, Jesus is our federal representative. Jesus is our federal representative. Jesus is fatherly in that he represents us federally as only a father can. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19 really makes this clear. And so just follow along, and as I'm reading Romans 5, 12 through 19, I just want you to to listen to and see that the two fathers that are sort of put before, as Paul's writing, he's saying, we belong we, we belong federally. There's no way that we can sort of opt out of saying, yeah, I don't belong to either of those two fathers. No, we do. All of us do. By our nature, we do. And so we see Jesus as Father in that he is our federal representative. Listen, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man, that's one of the federal fathers, Sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so just right there, that is the plight of every one of us coming into this world. 
is that we are infected with this disease called sin, and the consequence of it is that we will all die. For until the law for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there, was, uh, when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of one the many died... Introducing the new father, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand, the free gift arose from the many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so verse 18, so then there through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the death, as through... For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And so what, does, what is Paul saying there in Romans chapter 5? He's saying that by our birth, Adam is our father. He's our federal representative. We are all bound to his lineage. And because of what has been passed down, what has been passed down is sin. And because of sin, death. But praise be to God, there is another federal representative. There's another father who creates life and who gives another lineage. And it's the, the fatherly representation of Jesus with Adam and his fatherly representation all die, but with Jesus and his fatherly representation all live. Because Jesus is our representative father, we are declared righteous in the same way that Adam, as our representative father, declares us guilty. Because of Jesus' fatherly representation, we are acceptable to God, whereas Adam's fatherly rep representation, we are judged by God. And so how is it that Jesus is father? He's the federal head over all of those who will turn from their sin and place their faith and their trust in Christ alone. Because of Jesus' fatherly representation, we are able to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Where under Adam's, we're we have to hide from God and seek to deceive him so that he will find something acceptable in us. John chapter 8, the Jews said in this dialogue with Jesus, well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. You've got this wrong. You don't belong to Abraham because the wicked and the evil that you do shows, again, what Paul would say, Ephesians chapter 2, you belong. You are children of the prince of the power of this world. That's your head. That is your father. 
And so in case you were wondering this morning, I just want to be clear, Jesus is a better father than Satan. <laughs> he is. The one who deceives, the one who is wonderful in his counsel. The one who accuses, the one who makes righteous and acceptable. The one who condemns and the one who forgives. Church, if you cannot see how limitlessly superior this is to any gift, any food, any family, any party, then we will miss the crux of the celebration of Christmas. We have a fatherly Messiah in Jesus who represents us before the Father in his obedience and in his righteousness. And that's the only way that a group of people who continue to sin over and over and over again can ever stand before God the Father with any hope of acceptance. How? Because we are in Him. Because when He looks at us, He sees the obedience of the Son. Jesus is a Father in this way. He represents His people. Fourth, Jesus is also a father in that he is the founder of our faith. He's the founder of our faith. The word father brings to mind not only kind of familial images, but also images of leadership, particularly founding leadership. Socrates is called the father of philosophy. George Washington is called the father of this country. William Carey is known as the father of modern missions. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, tells us that Jesus is the author, the founder, and the perfecter of our faith. And so the whole chapter of Hebrews 12 is reminding us that Jesus was the first to fully and completely trust the Father, He did it perfectly. He founded the faith of what it looks like to belong to God. One pastor noted Jesus Christ is the preeminent example of faith. He lived the supreme life of faith. And he's the one who carries it through to completion. He continued to trust his father until he could say, it is finished. And on the cross, the work of Jesus... perfected, finished. And so we see Jesus as Father in this way. He fathered, he founded the Christian faith. And then lastly, we see Jesus as Father in that Jesus is the giver of life. Jesus is the giver of life. One of the most precious designations that I will ever have is that I'm a father to three daughters. And uh, you, for a host of reasons, are not the father of those three girls. And in large part, it's because you had no part in the life, the giving of life. I clearly am not God and didn't bring about that life, but I was used in that process. 
And so if a father is anything, a father is a life giver. He's a part of giving life. No human life has ever come apart from a father. And what's more is no spiritual life has ever come apart from a father. And so Jesus is both, he's a father of both of those realms. Again, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, all things that came in through being came through him. And so physically, as it concerns our physical life, he is a father in that he he has brought us into being. But even spiritually, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. And this testimony, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So how is it that we get eternal life? In the Son. And so he's fatherly in this way both as it pertains to our physical life as well as in our spiritual life. And so we know that through Christ, the divine life is given to us. The word tells us that in him was life and the life was the light of men. The Bible tells us that he gives us the living water and that in in us, it is a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The Bible tells us that he is the living grain of wheat which was cast to the ground to die. Why? Not so that it would abide alone, but so that it would die, and in dying, it would bring forth life. And so Jesus is fatherly in that sense. And it's the Spirit of God who works to quicken our souls and make us alive, but it is through the work of Christ that that happens. That's the channel through which the Spirit works. And so in receiving Christ, we receive life. If we have not received Christ, we do not have eternal and spiritual life. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so what's more is that the perfect fatherliness of Jesus, he's not just the giver of life, but the life that he gives, it will never end. It will never end. He will never stop being a perfect picture of the Father. He will never stop being our representative before the Father. He will never stop being the fatherly founder and the perfecter of our faith. And he will never stop being the Father, the giver of life. Jesus is everlastingly perfect Father. And so this fatherliness, the fatherliness of Jesus is worth celebrating this Christmas. That's what has come to us this Christmas. And though we cannot see him, he's no less alive today than when he was in eternity past and when he walked on on earth in Jerusalem. And he's no less alive today than when he will return to judge the living and the dead. He is alive because he is eternal and everlasting. And he's at the right hand of the Father, working in fatherly ways on behalf of his people, proving 
showing that what he did on the cross was indeed effective and it was sufficient. And this too is what has come at Christmas. Friends, we don't need to add anything to who he is. He is indeed wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. He is Emmanuel, God with us. All the gifts and all the food and all the friends in the world would fall still short of what it would take to make it a party worthy of this birth. And so let's seek him in his glory. And let's celebrate by receiving the names that the Father has given him and so given unto us. And let's commit ourselves to celebrating in a manner that's fit for the God-man, Jesus the Christ, everlasting, eternal Father. Let's pray. Our holy God, we come to you and ask that you would allow the reminders this morning of your eternal nature and your fatherly disposition and care. God, would you so allow just those meditations to change how we think of you, to change how we interact with you, to change how you think of us and how you interact with us. And I beg you, would we not walk away the same? And so, in this moment of silence, as the word has gone forth, we now ask that you would allow it to penetrate deep into our hearts. And so, by your spirit, show us what obedience looks like in light of this word we pray.